Sometimes when we talk about race and identity, it's so subjective. It's so, oh, well, this is how people feel. And, you know, it may change over time. But when you look at something like the census, you literally have to make a choice in that moment. And what people choose, I think, says a lot about the time that they live in and the way that they see themselves. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, Afro-Puerto Ricans fighting to be visible in the census. In the U.S., counting for the census has officially begun. It includes everyone living in the U.S. and its five territories, including Puerto Rico. To be counted, residents fill out a form online, by telephone or by mail. And the form itself has straightforward questions like a person's name, age, sex, and race. And while the answers may seem simple for some, filling out the form can get a little murky. Let's take the race question, for example. Some people don't have a problem checking the box. White, black, Chinese... But for others, like many who identify as Latino on the census, the answer isn't so black and white. See, here is where it gets tricky, because aside from the race question, the census also asks about Hispanic or Latino origin. And if the answer is yes, then sometimes that cultural connection is stronger than how someone identifies racially. Today, we're taking a look at Puerto Rico where all of the island's residents can select Puerto Rican on the census to describe their Hispanic origin. But when it comes to race, it's a different story. If you've ever been to the island, the legacy of African people is very much alive throughout all of Puerto Rican society and culture. It's in its language, its food, religion, and music. But in the 2010 census, over 75% of Puerto Ricans identified as white. Of course, there are many factors that have led to this, like anti-blackness and colorism in Latin America. Like, for example, the notion of mejorar la raza, which means to better the race, which means to be more white. But having an inaccurate count of racial demographics can hurt communities. And even then, you can't force a population to change how they identify. That choice is very personal. In order to understand the nuances of this issue, we reached out to journalist Natasha S. Alford, who's done a lot of reporting on the Afro-Puerto Rican community. She's done stories that range from beauty to police racially profiling Black residents on the island. And most recently, Natasha wrote about Afro-Puerto Ricans being counted in the census for the New York Times. Before we get to our story about Puerto Rico and the census, I wanted to share something that Natasha told me about that regards this feeling of invisibility. It's a major theme that you're going to hear about today. And this personal story came out as we began our conversation. In early March, Natasha attended a conference in New York City produced by the National Association of Black Journalists. She's an active member of the organization and attended the conference as a panelist. Here's Natasha. So I go to this conference. I speak about wellness and mental health. And, you know, there are lots of thank yous and, and hugs. And then I leave after 
I would say about an hour and a half. I left with a, a feeling of that was time well spent, but definitely ready to rest because I had been on the road for two weeks and there was starting to be a lot more news about coronavirus. Then I got a notification saying that someone at that conference tested positive for coronavirus. They asked everyone to take care of themselves, which for me means something very different because I also live with lupus. That means that my immune system is already compromised. I take medication every day for it. I then was just cast into this sea of confusion and anxiety because I didn't know if I had been exposed to the virus. Do we have any news? We do. I just got the news today that I am negative. Yes! And I, <laughs> I know, right? Wepa. Just a huge, like, thank you, God, you know, texted the family and friends and everything. But still a sense of sadness because there is someone who's still struggling right now. But wow, just this feeling of not being able to breathe, just holding my breath for a week. And that's the reason why we were not in the studio together, because I had to be extra cautious and safe during this time. So while you've been in this self-isolation, quarantine, have you thought about any intersection that you see between your life experience right now and the reporting that you've just done from Puerto Rico and the census and people fighting to be identified as Afro-Puerto Rican? There is 100% a sense of being seen in a way that I have never been seen before. I think uh, we call lupus an invisible illness, right? Because if you look at someone like me, you know, I'm in my 30s, I'm pretty active. People may not believe that it's real. And uh, similarly, this project of telling Afro-Latinx stories actually started in college because I was looking for myself. I didn't see a representation of women who look like me. The sense that you had to choose between Black, quote unquote, and Latino, as if they were completely separate, always persisted. I remember, you know, going to a quinceañera, I was like 11, and I was one of few, you know, little morena girls there. My mother is Puerto Rican and she's a olive, you know, she's actually your color, Maria. And I thought that every image in the magazine made it seem as though that version of Latinidad was so much more beautiful. And there was just nothing I could do to change that. But the older I got, I saw this shift that we were being seen. You know, I was seeing uh, Amara La Negra, for example, Sonny Hostin on The View. So we've always been there, but the sense that the mainstream media is starting to catch up and understanding the need to include us in conversations about Latinidad really inspired me to further attack this question of why are we invisible to some, right? And how are people exercising agency to change that? So let's talk about this piece that you published in the New York Times in February. The title of it was Why Some Black Puerto Ricans Choose White on the Census. 
Well, it, it actually came from previous headlines. I'd read some headlines in 2000 that stated that 80% of Puerto Ricans racially identified as white. But I didn't see too much follow-up on that story. It was just sort of a statement of fact rather than a question, an inquisition into why that would be the case. And so when you jump to 2010, 10 years later, there's a slight drop down to 76% who identify as white. And so the fact that you saw that slight change from 80 to 76 said something. And so the women who were responsible for this shift, who played a part, they started a, a media campaign dedicated to checking Black on the census, which again is a U.S. terminology for race, or writing in Afrodescendiente. The name of this group is, is Colectivo Ile, and their story, I felt, had never really been elevated. You know, of course, in local circles, there are people who, who know about this group. They've been around for a while since the 90s, but it felt very important to center them in the conversation and to center their work and to just find out how do you change people's minds about something that is so personal. And we're going to get to the whole conversation about the census in a moment, but you focused your reporting in the town of Loisa. So why did you go to Loisa and set the scene for us there? From childhood, Loisa had been spoken about as this almost magical place of, you know, the center of African tradition, the place where African heritage had been so well-preserved in Puerto Rico. And obviously, Africa is a continent with many countries, you know, and that's the reality of the transatlantic slave trade is that we cannot always trace exactly where we came from in Africa. It's believed that Nigerians who were enslaved settled Loisa. And then there was the reality of reading about Loisa as a place that was the hardest hit after Hurricane Maria, one of the hardest hit and one of the slowest to recover. A place where, you know, there's incredibly high amounts of unemployment and poverty, and yet it's celebrated culturally as this place that is the center of tradition. But what was interesting about Loisa was that when I went there, it was very clear that just because you lived in Loisa did not mean that you identified as Black. And I thought that was the perfect place to center this story because I wanted to complicate the narrative. So I went to Copi, which is a community center in Loisa, and I actually attended a bomba class and interviewed one of the drummers, one of the teachers about identity. He was born and raised in Loisa. He was the first to tell me that he does not call himself Afro-Puerto Rican, Afro-Latino, Afro-nothing. He's not Black per se, he is Puerto Rican above all else. I found that belief and sense of Puerto Rican national identity trumping everything. I found that in more than Louisa. So that's where the story starts. So what was your sense of how the Black residents in Louisa and in general on the island, what was your sense about how they talk about race? I mean, this is a huge question that I'm asking you, obviously, but What's the general sense of how Puerto Ricans interact with the issue of race? So race is, I'll just say, a taboo subject. Race is an uncomfortable subject. Race is something that lifts the veil of Puerto Rican unity. 
and just shakes it up completely, right? Because there's a narrative that Puerto Ricans are a mix of Taino. Right, and for people who don't know, the Tainos are the indigenous people of the Caribbean, which includes the island of Puerto Rico. Yes, so Taino, Spaniard, and African heritage. We've, you know, been told that, again, since we were born. And so when you even inject race into the conversation, it's almost as if, why is that necessary, right? We're all Puerto Rican. If you know anything about Puerto Rican history, you can understand this real desire for nationalism. You know, I am Puerto Rican. Before we get into the reasons why people might not identify as Black on the census, what are the reasons why people are so kind of adamant with, es que primero, antes que nada, desde lo más importante, you know, what matters, es que soy boricua, es que soy puertorriqueño, I am proud and Puerto Rican. How do you understand that nationalism, um, cultural pride within the context of Puerto Rico's history? Well, you have to understand that you know, colonialism has given Puerto Rico the short stick. And so it's this sense of being treated as second-class citizens, you know, not getting the resources that they need, even looking at the response to Hurricane Maria all of these years later. There, When I flew in to San Juan, there were still blue tarps on houses, right? So I the I understand <laughs> that that need to hold together. And also it's a form of resistance to say that I'm Puerto Rican first, to not necessarily jump at the thought of, oh, I'm an American and I'm going to assimilate, right? There is there is resistance there. And that pride um, is understandable. So resistance through the struggle and to highlight the injustice, I think all of that reinforces that national pride. But when it comes to race, that's when it gets a little bit tricky because being white in the context of America does have its privileges. And to be seen as a white country carried benefits. And so there's a hundred percent an understandable distancing from blackness that people have both institutionally and just on a personal level. Coming up on Latino USA, my conversation with journalist Natasha S. Alford about Puerto Rico, the census, and the race question continues. Stay with us. No te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to learn more and get 10% off your first month. In the United States, Black people as a whole have less access to good health care, to education, and job opportunities than other groups. But who do we even mean when we say Black people? Who counts as Black? It's a question this country has been trying to answer from the very beginning. Listen on NPR's Code Switch podcast.
Hey, we're back. And we're going to jump right back into my conversation with journalist Natasha S. Alford. I didn't know this particular part of the history of Puerto Rico. You said centuries ago, a policy known as gracias al sacar, which means thank you to the taking away. Am I right? It's almost like a favor, basically. And so the Spanish empire gave this favor to a select group of Puerto Ricans. You had to be considered mixed by a certain degree. You couldn't be too mixed, but you could ask the favor of the crown to be reclassified as white. And what it did was it allowed you the privileges of a white person. So, you know, in there are certain professions that you could not hold if you were negro, right? But being white allowed you to hold these professions, to move about the island freely. And so they wanted the freedom and the privilege that came with being white. And so they could petition the empire to be reclassified and they would have to pay So again, capitalism and (laughs) money at work, right? So you could pay to be reclassified as white. It makes a phrase like mejorar la raza less surprising. That's the descendant of something like gracias al sacar. So mejorar la raza in Latin America, everybody has heard that. Everybody has heard that. And it means to better the race. How did that erasure of blackness, the as you say, the capitalist possibility of buying yourself out of blackness, how did it continue when the United States seizes Puerto Rico in 1898? So what you saw is first with this the census classification, you saw a whitening happen on the census. So there was a census that was taken in the 1900s in which there was a significant number of the population of residents on the island who identified as colored or mixed, right? It was more than a quarter that identified as of color. And then after the U.S. sees Puerto Rico, you see this huge spike and this jump to be white. And you also see that the upper class, they're striking deals with different industries in the U.S. They are supporting policies that advance their class And so then it becomes a conversation that is about socioeconomic status and class, which is why I think race kind of gets uh, lost in the conversation because we think of these things in terms of class, but class is a substitute for race. And so by uh, keeping Afro-Latinos, Afro-Puerto Ricans in these poor neighborhoods with fewer rights, less access to education and social mobility, you cripple them and you create that reality of struggle. And that struggle is what so many people try to distance themselves from. It seems like there was another part of the story that you wanted to document, which is the story of the activists. This group of women activists who are all Afro-Latinas, Afro-Boricuas, Afro-Puerto Rican. Why did you want to highlight that part of the story? The name of this group is is Colectivo Ile, and they are anti-racist educators, organizers, women from many different backgrounds. But listen, they're just simply doing the work. Uh, They were on the forefront of this. They're in the communities um, holding educational sessions where they talk about African pride and rewriting narratives that paint Africa as a poor place, as an uneducated place, as a place where nothing good came from it. But they've joined forces with other groups as well. 
I'm thinking specifically of Defend PR. That's like a multimedia project that is more focused on documenting and celebrating um, what's happening on the island. And so, you know, I worked with producers from that project who were my local uh, connects and, and translators. I was very intentional about working with people on the island uh, when I went to, to work on this story. And then you have Taller Salud, which is a community-based uh, grassroots feminist organization that's based in Puerto Rico, and they focus on young women and girls. So all of these organizations have joined forces to support the women of Colectivo Ile. And yeah, they deserve to be heard. They're, they're often erased in other ways. And so, you know, that is why it was important to center them. So how have they been able to create a sense of movement with their activism? Yeah, so I think first and foremost, just by focusing on this, the movement comes from <laughs> the controversy. Honestly, I mean, there's some people who are so pissed that they're doing this uh, campaign and they're getting a lot of pushback. So one, they're just bold and audacious for taking it on, but really they're focused on media there is a poster, which you see in the New York Times story that I published, and it shows a hand writing in Afrodescendiente on the census. So they're quite literally telling people to, if you're not going to check Black, to basically take your identity into your own hands and show the census that they're leaving out this terminology, which needs to be included. So they have the posters, they have an entire social media campaign, and they're going around the island and first just educating people about what the census is and why they should care. And then again, talking about Afro-Latinx achievements. So there's this whole curriculum that celebrates famous Afro-Puerto Ricans, talks about the things that they've contributed to society, and then they talk about Africa, the continent, and the history at large. So it's really education. Education and media is the way that they are getting the word out. They said that they did something similar after the 2000 census, where there were 80% that identified as white, and they feel that it made a difference in the 2010 census. So now with the 2020 census, we'll see if that number goes down even further. So what happens if people are not identifying as Afro-descendant? What happens if you have what you would consider an inaccurate census count, how does this impact the island? Like there's a lot of empowerment in terms of identity and the history, but what does it actually look like in a kind of concrete way? Yeah, so this is quite literally about policy. So the census determines how much money is allotted for certain federal programs. So for example, there may be a housing program based on a certain population. But when it comes to social programs, a lot of the activists are saying that we don't have social programming dedicated to Afro-Boricuas because we're literally not tracking them. So you can't do anything if you're not even counting the population. One of my stories focused on police brutality. And when I went to look for data about arrests of Afro-Puerto Ricans, I couldn't find it because they weren't tracking race. They didn't even bother to answer the question. And so I had to go to a local activist group, Kilometro Cero, and they were tracking every Puerto Rican that had been, every citizen that had been killed by police. And they were writing down their background, um, you know, racial identity, things like that. So 
if the local groups are doing it, we need to push for the count at the federal level because then you can actually shape policy and you can see problems. I want to talk about one more thing when it comes to tracking. So racial uh, disparities in health are huge. And there was one group from the University of Puerto Rico that did a study that asked people about how their health was. But instead of using the census categories of white and black, they asked them to list their skin color. So they rated, you know, shades and they basically said, pick if you're light, uh, you know, if you're medium, if you're dark. And through asking that, they were actually able to unearth health disparities. And they found out that lighter skin Puerto Ricans had better health outcomes than darker skin Puerto Ricans. But it was simply asking people to list their color instead of asking them to use census categories of race that helped them to find that. Right. And so this is what we mean by public policy and, and social policy that benefits people's lives. It's not just about being proud to be black. It's literally about the political implications of not being counted as black when your reality is being impacted by your race. So, you know, you're seeing your article published in The New York Times. Potentially millions of people have read this piece I think the response has been overwhelmingly positive. A lot of people reaching out saying thank you for highlighting this in a nuanced way, you know, because it's also important not to, uh, I didn't come at this with any judgment per se. You know, I just wanted people's stories to be told and I wanted the nuance to be in there. There was someone who messaged me and she said that while she appreciated the story, I should be careful about portraying Puerto Rico as a black country. Then she proceeded to tell me, again, the, you know, kind of well-worn narrative about there were Tainos and there were Spaniards and there were Africans. And she even gave me a bunch of like ancestry DNA numbers. And I just thought it was fascinating that this one person, while probably well-intentioned, insisted that I not portray Puerto Rico as a black country not realizing that it was never about that. It was about Black Puerto Ricans and elevating why they would or would not pick a certain identity. And it almost proved my point or the point of the activists, really, that people are afraid of being seen as Black in Puerto Rico to the point where you would go and you'd find me on the internet to let me know that Puerto Rico is not a Black country. It actually kind of proves the point that there's some fear there and it's worth interrogating why. That was journalist Natasha S. Alford. Her reporting on Afro-Puerto Ricans and the census was featured in the New York Times. And you can find the rest of her reporting on being Black in Puerto Rico at the Pulitzer Center. She also has a documentary about her research that's out this month.
This episode was produced by Janice Yamoka and edited by Luis Treyes. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Sofia Palizaca, Antonia Cerejido, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Joanne DeLuna and Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our intern is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by W.K. Kellogg Foundation, a partner with communities where children come first. Carnegie Corporation, promoting the advancement and diffusion of knowledge and understanding. And the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. You can't yawn, Raul. <laughs> Raul yawned. <laughs> Here we go. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA. Advice for life in self-quarantine. Advice columnist John Paul Bramer imparts his wisdom for these strange new times. It's sort of like the whole world is a little bit sick right now. And you don't, you don't run marathons when you're sick. You go take a rest. <laughs> That's next time on Latino USA. 